This morning we're going to be in John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you'd like to, you're welcome to take that home as a gift from us to you and for your family. If you're unfamiliar maybe with how to use the Bible, you've never been in church before, or you're just, man, nobody's ever explained this to me. I don't know where these books are. You can find them in the table of contents at the front of the Bible. And then when we say chapters, those are going to be the big numbers. Verses, those are going to be the, the small numbers. And we're going to be in John chapter 16. Verses 25 through 33. For the last uh, several uh, years, as we've kind of had our family Sunday and have been going through this, and through the Lord's Supper and now through family Sundays, we have been going through the, the Gospel of John so that our kids, who are normally in kids' worship upstairs, get a window into what it looks like to journey through a book together. And so there's, there's purpose to the switching back and forth. Now, one of the things we're going to discover today in John 16 is that what Jesus really began in John chapter 14 in this kind of farewell discourse and saying goodbye, the long goodbye that he's given us, is John is wrapping these things up and getting ready to transition in chapter 17 to the high priestly prayer. And so we are talking about it this week, and, and Jesse said, I feel like Jesus has said for a long time that the day is coming, that he's going to go away. I said, well, he has, like chapter 14, chapter 15, and now chapter 16. So you're going to be seeing some of these same themes is he's bringing all of these things together, and he's going to offer, in some sense, a summary of all the things contained in chapters 14 through chapter 16. And so join with me as we read through this and then journey through the study of this together. John records Jesus' words. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So his disciples respond. And they say, ha ha, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know uh, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus responds, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus ends with this wonderful statement of having overcome the world. But notice that contained within this passage is a terrific amount of confusion on the part of the disciples. So I want to just kind of flash back to chapter 14. You remember that he talks about his departure and how it's it's imminent, it's coming soon. And so as a part of that, the disciples are really confused as to what exactly Jesus means when he says that he's going to be leaving. Because contained within their mind, within their understanding of how these things work, it makes no sense that the Messiah would pack out and leave, right? He's got to finish the task that they assume that he's there for. He's got to finish uh, setting things right. He's got to oust the Romans. He's got to reestablish a right temple understanding of temple worship. 
And so it makes no sense that he continues on about this same thing, that I'm going away just a little bit, I'm not going to be here anymore, and then I'm going to send somebody else, he's going to be a helper, and he's going to take my place. The disciples are, are, are flummoxed, they're confused, they don't understand. And so he offers them some entrance into this. Look what he says. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. In essence, he said, look, I've not spoken in the most plain way possible, and I have done this because you're not ready to take it in. He's told them this. He said, I have other things to tell you, but you're not ready to take these things in yet. And so Jesus has spoken in ways that are memorable, but not clear. They're memorable, like they're playing them over and over again in their conversations. Pete, do you know what Jesus is on about? No, I can remember exactly what he said, but the clarity is just not quite there. I remember what he said, but the clarity is just not quite there. So Jesus tells them. He says, this hour is coming when I'm no longer going to speak to you in figures of speech, but I'm going to speak to you plainly, clearly. You're going to readily understand what I'm going to say, and the substance of my communication to you is largely going to be on the Father and his nature and kind of who he is. So the disciples hear this. They're evaluating this on their their past experience with Jesus, And Jesus goes on. You remember that he had already given them a word on prayer back in verse 23. But he continues in that same vein. He says, in that day, so when the hour arrives, when this happens, you will ask in my name. So we're going to ask in the authority of Jesus. We're going to ask in such a way that honors Jesus. And this is going to happen. He says, look, now when you ask in this way, I'm no longer going to ask the Father on your behalf. Now why isn't Jesus going to relay the request of the disciples for them is because he doesn't care for them no that would that would that would seem to be really contrary to the way that he's the way that he's lived his life the last few years with them right it wouldn't make any sense it'd be like if if tim and i were really good friends and and i'm sharing with tim over some years or some months and then all of a sudden i say look tim i'm not going to relay anything else for you to the rest of the staff he's like why aren't you doing that is it because you don't care for me? No, it's because you also have friendship with them. You also have the ability to talk to them. And this is what Jesus is relaying. This is what Jesus is, is communicating to them. There is no longer any need for Jesus to relay to the Father the request of the disciples because they have union with him or coming union with him. And what is this based on? Look at the terrific uh, awareness that he brings them into in verse 27. He says, the Father himself loves you. Now, this for the disciples would have been been absolutely kind of paradigm-shaping. And this for us in this moment, today for you, stands the possibility of fundamentally altering your conception of how these things work. That today, you have the ability to be loved by God through Jesus. This is the terrific equation that Jesus makes real impossible for the Christian. And so we begin to go into this in this understanding. He says, the Father himself loves you. The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who who is upholding all these things through the power of the Son, he himself delights in you through his Son, Jesus. He says, he himself loves you. You John lets us know in 1 John 4, 19 that that we love because because he first loved us now this is important because what he says next our love for god is initiated by god towards us and we respond in love towards him so why has the father loved us it says because you have loved me 
the, the love we receive for the Father, from the Father, we return in love for Jesus. And our love for Jesus is displayed in our obedience. You see, it's not just this idea of a lip service of love saying, Jesus, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of you. I just really love you. You're just such a great guy. I just, I'm so thankful for all the amazing things you've done for me. John uh, records Jesus' word that he has made it abundantly clear to us that there is no separation from our obedience to God from our love of God in Jesus. He said it at least three times in chapter 14 and verses uh, 21 and, and verses 23 and 24. Let's look at just a couple of these. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And so Jesus really interrupts this idea that, that we can be in the midst of relationship with Jesus and just completely discount everything that he said. In essence, this idea in Christianity, or it's not really Christianity, but this kind of aberrant understanding of what it is to have all the benefits of Jesus and none of the requirements of that relationship, that sees us as being just this complete recipient of, of, of all the various benefits, but in terms of relationship management, what it looks like to be obedient and manifest continual relationship with him some of us within our culture have discounted these things and said these things are unnecessary. It's not necessary that I live a life of obedience to him. You see, I can live however I want to. I can do whatever I want to. But Jesus gives us a really clear picture that these things couldn't be further from the truth. Our obedience to God shows the truthfulness of our love for Jesus. But you could argue the opposite, right? That if we're not displaying obedience to Jesus, there's at least some question as to whether or not we actually love him or we love his benefits. We love the idea of salvation. We love the idea of not going to hell. But the idea of obeying Jesus and, and maintaining this relationship to him through that seems a little bit overboard, Jesus. And it's not just that they've loved him. But look at the second condition or the second thing tied to the Father's love of the disciples. He says, and have believed that I came from God. You see, it's not just some notional understanding that's kind of loose and just kind of just not clearly understood thing of who Jesus was. He says, you've understood that I have come from God. Now, this is radically important. John begins his gospel in this way. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was what? Word, that's right, you're very clever. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... Man, you guys are sharp. The, the earlier class really struggled on this one. And so we noticed that, that it's not just that he has come from God, but he was eternally with God. And verse 14 goes on and says... The, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then we come to find out in this word, who forever dwelt with the father, who took on flesh, this word is Jesus. So Jesus says, you love me, you understand something of me, and we recognize that the mission of God is given to Jesus in John 3, 16, for that God so loved the world in this way that he sent his son, right? So that no one should perish, but everyone might have the opportunity to receive everlasting life. 
This is what it means when Jesus says that I came from God. So Jesus offers us, in some sense, this summary statement of his ministry. Verse 28 says, I have come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus wants the disciples to get this. He's he's worked really hard to help them understand this. He said, you need to understand something. I started somewhere other than here. They're like, Nazareth? He says, no, not there. He said, you need to understand something. I came from the Father. So from the Father, Jesus, Jesus eternally dwelling with God. And he comes, he steps into humanity. He steps into time. He invests himself there. And in the midst of doing so, he fundamentally alters their trajectory of their lives. And they have this assumption that he's there, that he's there for good, that he's not leaving. So he lets them know, you're still missing this. I've come from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world. Now this can be taken to understand he's just talking about his death, right? This, this, this tragic set of circumstances that his ministry is going to be cut short, that his life's going to come to an end, but Jesus lets us know that it's not merely an exodus from this world, but it's an exodus with purpose, and the directionality is right back where he came from. He's going back to the Father. Now, I want you to understand this in terms of what Isaiah said. Isaiah, speaking of the word of God, he said in chapter 55 and verse 11, he says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. The express purpose of the sent out word of God was accomplishing salvation, was accomplishing the atonement for humanity. This is the express purpose Jesus was sent for. And so he started with the Father, he comes into the world, he offers up his life so that, so that the wrath of God might be poured out on Jesus instead of being poured out on you, instead of being poured out on me. And once he has received the wrath of God, once he has been raised from the dead, he returns then to the Father and he sits because his work is finished. The Father loves you because you believed in me and because you have loved me. So his disciples hear this, and you can almost kind of get a sense that the collective head-scratching for them, and hmm, 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 ha-ha, there's this light bulb moment, but yet they don't realize that the light bulb's incredibly dim, right? And so Jesus is there, and he's going to point out the insufficiency of their understanding. So the disciples say, we've got it. Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. And I gotta imagine that in this moment, Jesus just goes, Time's running short, boys. Time's running short. They think he's got it. Now, remember that he said, Look, a time's coming, the hour's coming, the day is coming. I'm not gonna use figures of speech. And so the disciples, in some sense, think, We've got it. We've got it. We know what you're talking about. This is totally clear. Where was all this the last three years? We know what you're saying. So in verse 30, say, they say, ah, now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. In essence, the point that they make is we have completely worn you out asking questions, and we think now we've hit the end of those questions. Like we have no unanswered questions from you, Jesus. 
we, we don't have anything we want to ask Thomas does, but we told him his talking break it starts now. And so we don't have any more questions to ask you. We're clear. And on the basis that we think you've told us everything, now we think you've come from God. We're clear. And of course we know that they're not clear. Of course we know that even though they state something that is accurate and true, Jesus has in fact come from God. He's told them this multiple times. They are missing it. And this is why Jesus responds. He says, do you now believe? Do you, do you now believe? Do you, do you really get it, guys? Do you really understand? You can see them like, why? he seems to be thinking we're going to say no to this. But, but I feel like the answer is yes, 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 Jesus. We totally believe. So again, he responds. He says, behold, pay attention in essence. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Now, here's the deal. If they had truly believed, if they had truly understand, it would have fundamentally altered the way that they would act in the coming hours when the crowds came with clubs and torches to pull Jesus away. If they truly understood who he was, if they truly understood his mission and his purpose and his plan, it would fundamentally alter how they were going to respond. But this is the love of Jesus in this, right? He shares this with them. He's been prepping them. He's been pouring out his heart to them. And he lets them know that they're missing it. He even tells of their departure from him. How they're going to bail on him. How they're going to uh, act like they don't even know him. He says, you're going to leave me alone. In his moment of need, the disciples wouldn't be found. In his moment of need, they're going to be looking at uh, the thought of self-preservation. But Jesus has this word. He says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I'm not alone, for the Father is is with me. And I want you to understand something, that that Jesus' words there to the disciples aren't a discounting of their importance in his life. It's not that he says to them, you guys are ultimately unimportant because I've always got God the Father there with me. What his words there mean to do is to begin to plant this seed in them. That no matter how difficult, no matter how uh, painful life gets, that they too, on the basis of their relationship to God through Jesus, might also result in never being abandoned by the Father. And this is a truth we encounter today. How many of us have gone through difficult seasons of life? And there's this kind of episodic where people just kind of flock to us and they comfort us, but all of our grief has a shelf life. All of their comfort has a shelf life, and there's going to come a point when we look around and we're reminded of our need, and we're reminded of our sadness, and we look around and nobody's there. We're spinning around and no one is close to us. The theological truth we pick up in this passage is even in those moments, when you feel like you couldn't possibly be more alone, when you feel like you couldn't possibly be more lonely, more desperate, more heartbroken, brought closer to the end of yourself, even in those moments, and especially in those moments, be reminded of this promise. He will never leave you alone. The Bible tells us he'll never leave us nor forsake us. How do we understand these things? What are are we supposed to look at? What Jesus offers in verse 33, a statement that kind of encapsulates all these things and brings them all together. So I want us to spend just a few moments looking at this. 
Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. What are the things? He's told them he's leaving. He's told them the Holy Spirit will take his place. And he's told them of the consistency of the Father. They know how to have a relationship with God the Father through the Son. So Jesus tells them that in me you may have peace. Now this is such an incredibly important part of speech here. Where is our peace located? It's not in our relationships. It's not in our friendships. It's not in our bank account. But so often this is where we go to reestablish peace, is it not? That in the midst of our failing marriages, we begin to kind of do this calculus and this understanding that when turmoil creeps up, when my wife and I no longer get along, man, I just want to get along. Like I just want to have peace reign in our home. And so I change my behavior. I seek to influence her responses and her behavior to help our house be peaceful again. This is kind of what we do. But you'll recognize this, that, that all attempts at that peace in your marriage are, are short-time lived, right? We'll cycle back around and we'll have some difficulty again. In some sense, this is the nature of marriage. But, but also it points out the fleeting nature of all works to establish peace on our own. So think about it in terms of the workplace. Raise your hand if you've ever worked with a difficult person. I'm going to put mine down because I don't work with one right now. But, <laughs> but, you know, some of us work with difficult people, which is really strange because some of you are self-employed and you work by yourself. But in the midst of this, we begin to try and develop work systems. And so let me just change the reporting structure so you don't report to me anymore. And, and I can just kind of vicariously live through what a difficult, uh, annoying person you are through so-and-so. And so we begin to kind of change and shift our systems to try and create some semblance of peace in the workplace. But this requires constant management, does it not? This requires constant involvement in an exercise because we're working with other people who, although they're made in the image and likeness of God, we wonder if they're really very close to him. And our friendships, our friendships that cycle back around, and there's some breach of trust, there's some, some, some uh, betrayal, but there's just a lack of commonality. We're in different seasons, and we feel like we're no longer speaking the same language to one another. And so we want to reinvigorate these relationships. We want to be united back and forth. We want it to be like it was. We want it to be like it was at its best. But our friendship, too, slide down and slide sideways. Or maybe where you sit this morning, your, your parents are in the midst of a difficult situation. So as a child, as a student, you look around and you say, Mom and Dad fight constantly. Mom and Dad fight constantly, but I'm convinced there's something that I can do to help them get along. I can clean more, I can help more, I can be quieter, I can be hidden I cannot be a trigger for their dysfunction. That's not on you. If you're a child here and you're trying to keep your parents' marriage together and you're fighting for this, this isn't your plan, this isn't your purpose, this is not what you're here for. I mean, it's noble, it's loving for your parents even, I think. But that is not your role within the context of that relationship. In all of your efforts, 
and all of your energy and all of your tears and all of your heartache. They may result in temporary peace, but they can't produce lasting peace in the home. What we see from this text plainly is that lasting peace is only ever experienced in the person of Jesus. This is where all of our peace is. I want you to understand why. This isn't primarily a communication to say that if you are a Christian, your life is peaceful and your life is conflict-free. Like, if this was something we could sell legitimately, we would totally be selling it. But we get the sense that, that we can't, and all who tempt to are nothing more than hucksters of a false gospel. We can only have peace in him because Jesus primarily understands that the greatest cause for alarm for any of us isn't relational difficulties. It's not frustration or conflict in the home or in the workplace. The greatest cause of alarm for any of us is the cause for eternal alarm. The peace Jesus desires to bring to us is an everlasting peace where we might have union with the Father through him. And if, listen to me now, if you don't have peace in Jesus, then you have no peace with God. And if you don't have peace with God found in Jesus, then your eternity hangs in the balance because what awaits for you, according to the Bible, is a life so incredibly bereft and empty of peace in that place that Christ refers to over and time again where you will spend eternity is referred to as hell place separated from the love of God, experiencing the punishment and the wrath of God for all eternity. When Jesus writes and he says, in me you may have peace, he invites you to know him. And in knowing him to experience the benefits of him, that we know that no matter how difficult life gets, and in fact Jesus says, he says, in this world you will have peace tribulation. Now just pretty much insert any bad word that you would think there. In this world, things are going to be messed up. In this world, relationships are going to crash on the rocks. In this world, you're going to lose your job. In this world, relatives are going to die. In this world, you're going to be sick. In this world, people are going to disappoint you. In this world, the church is going to disappoint you. In this world, you're going to disappoint yourself. In me, you may have peace. Jesus changes our perspective. He calls us, he says, quit looking at the immediate difficulties around you and cast your eyes upon eternity where I'm bound that in me you may have peace. You see, if Jesus merely tells us, if he merely comes in and says, look, in the midst of bad situations in life, just, just, just know this, that you need to tap into this sense of kind of utter calm and go hum, hum, when your wife is ugly, just say hum. When your job's really terrible, say hum. When people around you are awful and you wish they'd die, say hum. Right? Like if that's the song he teaches us, it's empty, it's bankrupt, and it's got no end. And he's nothing more than petty and small. But he calls us to find everlasting peace in him so that when things go wrong, and they will. With an eternal perspective, we see him, and in the midst of these things, with our eyes fixed on Jesus in eternity, we're able to take heart. He's calling us. The command in this is to be courageous. 
Be courageous in the midst of difficulty. Courageous in the midst of heartache, not because that's who we are, but because of what he did and who he is eternally. Amen? And we're able to take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. I want you to see the certainty of this statement. And and just kind of the unfolding narrative of where we are. Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. Jesus has not died yet. Jesus has not been raised from the dead. But even before it happens, he's able to look at the world and say, all of these things I have already overcome. That's the certainty he provides. That's the surety he offers. And that is the faithfulness of our God. Who even in the midst of tribulation... And in your life, there will be many. Even in the midst of heartache, and sadly, in your life, it will be a frequent visitor. That even in the midst of difficulty, his victory stands. And he beckons you. He pleads with you. Come enjoy peace in me. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that it is in your Son, Jesus, that we may have peace. That it is in his goodness to us that sin and death are overcome. God, this morning as we're here in this place, we know that we have brothers and sisters The fog of tribulation in their lives is blinding. They can't see beyond their nose. God, would you give them true vision this morning to see your goodness even in the midst of these difficulties? Your everlasting promise in the person of Jesus even in the midst of terrific heartbreak and anguish. And Father, I think about those this morning who have yet to submit themselves to you. Seeking to make tribulation okay, difficulties manageable, and doing it all on their own. Struggling for some elusive sense of peace and calm. Father, today I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would be convicted concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment that they would come to see themselves as a sinner in need of forgiveness. And they would delight in coming to know Jesus. So God, we pray that you would work that in the heart of those who do not respond to the gospel. God, I pray that you would call to our memory, to our recollection, those of us who already have. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.